Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Kathy Fisher with us. She is with Bernstein, and she's very good at trying to get us to talk about the long term. Like I'm thinking Monday, John, you know, get out to the long term Monday or maybe to the end of the year. Kathy, what a tumultuous time. Do you have the same conversations now that you would have any time over the last 12 years? Actually, no. And the reason for that is that everything that's happened in the past few years has created this sense that really significant change is underway, i.e. The, the, the multiple decades of globalization that let companies improve their margins, their efficiency over time, has, is starting to reverse. And that companies now have to figure out a different way of operating, no matter what business they're in. So that sense of change is creating a, a lot of anxiety, but also, yeah. I think, respect for the fact that companies aren't panicking, but rather trying to figure well, out how to deal with these this changes. This is the arch question. We've been with you through the morning. You've been brilliant on this. I'm looking at the screen. John and I are seeing a screen basically we've never seen before. It doesn't have a leverage of 1998, da, 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 da. Your arch theme is corporate management will adapt to the times. What's your level of confidence in that? It's actually pretty high. Um, not every company, obviously, but when you look across each sector, everyone's being disrupted by technology, by changing consumer behaviors, and now by globalization. But people just don't lay down and take it. They figure out how do we deal with these changes. And when you when, this quarter's earnings are going to be particularly interesting as we look to see how companies are indeed dealing Where with these changes. Where on the income changes. statement? Where on the income statement, I think it's going to be um, not so much what's happened in the past, but the, what they're saying about the future. And clearly, revenues are what matters. So there's a lot of that focus. And also on the cost side, as yeah. companies start to figure out, you know, are we paying more for people in a, in a tight labor market? Do we have to change our supply chains? And how long will it take to do that? Lots of right. change afoot. Uh, John Farrell, just 18 months looking at Apple with all the headaches they've had. They're up 18%, 12% annualized. It's no bad, is it? Yeah, I'm just saying, corporate, you'll think of Apple, think of the headaches they have. So there was a report several hours ago from Japan's Nikkei that said HP, Dow, Microsoft Saw could that. shift some production Brilliant. from China. Kathy, do we have to get used to those kind of headlines? Yes, you, clearly every company is saying, how do I ensure that I have a stable supply chain, knowing that tariffs can occur anywhere now, and probably more diversification of supply chains will be a more normal course of business, as it should be. You've got risk everywhere now, and it's not just the US imposing tariffs, but you've got other countries doing the same as well. So you can see how there's going to be a lot of distribution of activity um, as, as, as opposed to concentrations that we've seen in the past. So your base case for this earnings season, because some people are bracing for some bad news going into the end of the year, some negative revisions from some big multinationals in the United States. Are you looking for that, Kathy? Is that your expectation too? Yeah. So, you know, I think the expectations for earnings are pretty low. Um, the real question is the guidance companies are giving. And they're, and we've already seen some mixed signals. Some companies are actually guiding up a bit. Others, of course, are guiding down. And that's what everyone's going to be looking for. And, I, and again, I would argue it's not going to be as much one an industry theme as a company by company theme. Just a final question for you, Kathy. A lot of people have been looking at this 
rally between bonds and equities and wondering when it breaks down. And of course, this can persist for a while. Bonds can perform, fixed income can perform along with equities as well. But at some point, there could be a divergence. When that breaks, A, when do you think it will break? And B, how do you think it snaps? Yeah. Um, can't tell about the time. Um, it seems to me that uh, the bond rally um, is probably the, the more vulnerable um, because if, if short rates do come down, that might give more confidence to where the economy goes longer run and therefore longer rates could come up. So that that would be my view of how things change. Um, but you know, there, there's, we have to expect volatility in both stocks and bonds, given all that's going on. Kathy, thank you so thank much. You, Kathy. In, the, in the turmoil of this, of, I, it feels like a Friday, but it's not. It's not. It's Wednesday, Tom. It's Wednesday. Thank you so much for coming. Thank greatly, you. thank greatly you, Kathy. With Bernstein. John, bring in our esteemed get lots to talk about here. Yes, so much. And a fantastic ECB watcher as well. Frederic Ducrozet joins us now, global strategist at Bank Pictet. Great to have you with us, Frederic. Your thoughts, your initial thoughts on the changes at the top of the ECB that we could be getting at the end of October? Well, I think it's a net positive. Uh, we've been uh, wondering what exactly uh, Christine Lagarde would be saying, thinking, doing about monetary policy, because it's a surprise, to be honest. I mean, uh, remember nine months ago, she actually denied being a candidate. So we, were, we had all our notes ready for Jens Weidmann, if it was him, for another French candidate, for uh, Erkilikanen, Oli Ren, but not for Christine Lagarde. So it's, it's a surprise, but I think it's a positive surprise for many reasons. The main one for markets being continuity. Uh, and I think she will very much continue the work, preserve the uh, credibility and uh, legacy of Mr. Draghi. And that's absolutely essential for markets. Frederic, I think for many people, they're comfortable with the idea that it's just not Jens Weidmann at the ECB and they can keep the trades they had on on because it will be the continuity candidate. You've picked up on something that I think is quite important. The core of the ECB is changing. We've lost Peter Prate, who was the chief economist. He has been replaced by Philip Lane, the Irishman. At the end of the year, of course, the end of October, we will lose President Draghi, set to be replaced by Madame Lagarde. But at the end of the year, at the end of 2019, as an individual that I don't think has had enough talked about of him, Frederic, and it is Benoit Couré, who oversees the markets portfolio at the ECB. He's stepping down at the end of the year. How critical will it be to get the right replacement for Benoit Couré? You're absolutely right. I think it's even more important now that we have a politician um, at the head of the ECB, also at the vice presidency, Mr. De Guindos is a politician also uh, heading this, uh, this uh, uh, executive board with the president. And it's all the more important that you have a chief economist and a head of market operation who are experts, so to say. Yeah. <laughs> and Philip Lane is one. Uh, we'll see who replaces Kerry. Okay, Philip Lane, the giant of Trinity College, is Harvard PhD, and Benoit Carré, who I ran into years ago, folks, is basically the wonder child of monetary academics in France. Great. Can't Madame Lagarde, like Jerome Powell, just dial one eight hundred Bank France and talk to Benoit Carré? I mean, she can. She, she does this. She can just bring in a lot of good advice before critical decisions, right? Obviously, and that's, uh, that's an, an important point as well in terms of the transition. We'll get uh, uh, most likely a decision by the ECB in July, in September, probably some easing. Uh, the, 
stage will be set for her to continue, including in terms of market operation. The only thing is that uh, it's a political decision to replace Benoit Curé, probably not by a French man or woman, maybe by an Italian. And then, that's the important part as well, it's the the president's uh, responsibility and choice to distribute the responsibility within the council and the executive board in particular. So she could still make a change and, and make a choice uh, in this regard, depending on who will be nominated uh, at the board. So, Frederic, let's talk about policy from the ECB in the next couple of months. Most people think the ECB will give the July meeting a pass and we look straight to the September when we get the economic forecast. Frederic, the depot rates negative 40 basis points. How low do you see that going? I think uh, the path of least resistance is to cut rates again. Probably in September, you can actually signal this in July by changing the forward guidance for allowing deposit rates to go uh, lower. This is what you just discussed before in terms of the 10-year bond yield. This is absolutely discounted and at, I think, 100% or close to 100% by markets. Uh, so that's the first step, but it's not the most important one. We all agree that negative rates can only achieve very little in terms of bringing inflation closer to the target and probably very little, in my opinion. Uh, one argument is to prevent uh, an appreciation in the currency if the Fed does cut and perhaps even more than expected. So that's one argument. But the second one is more important. They have to prepare for the possibility of resuming asset purchases. This is absolutely the highest importance uh, uh, within all the tools. And to do this, they sh- might try right. and start to consider an increase in the limits. I, I say this with your great competency in French academics and the mathematics that wraps around it, uh, Frederick, and it's simple. Is this a race to the bottom? I mean, I guess the U.S. and Ms. Mester of Cleveland said the U.S. is nowhere near the bottom. But come on, we're getting there fast in a lot of other countries, aren't we? I personally hate it. Uh, you could, I mean, I'm based in Switzerland, and uh, I mean, the economy is doing quite fine, but you have negative rates at minus 75 basis negative points, and they could actually 75. lower them again. Uh, you have Switzerland, okay, well, you have, uh, wait, wait, Sweden, th- Sweden as well. Sorry. This is incredibly important. Uh, the Swiss 20 year bond is plunged negative 0.18, which is just unreal. Academically, are we now at the point where negative rates become? so deep that they truly affect the financial system? I think so. I think so, and I think that the consensus is actually growing within central bankers and economists uh, working at central banks. So, I mean, the hope, the positive take on that is that we are close to the bottom, close to the effective lower bound, that the ECB cuts just once because of the Fed in particular, and then from there you do something bigger, more efficient, without the side effects, which is QE. And essentially, if QE works, if the economy picks up in China, in Europe, and perhaps also in the U.S. later on, then you'll get your steepening in the yield curve, helping financials, helping markets, helping the economy at the end of the day. Frederic, let's explore that just to wrap things up. The effective lower bound for interest rates at the ECB. You said we're close to it. How do you come to that conclusion? I said it's a, it's a guess. You have a number of uh, empirical studies. Uh, I mean, it's everyone's guess, to be honest. But uh, as you just said, since we are seeing some adverse effect on the financial sector, perhaps some imbalances in terms of the housing market and asset prices as well, it's very likely that we are coming closer to it. So maybe the ECB will introduce tiering deposits or to mitigate the impact on the banking sector, but that's not, uh, I mean, the, the addressing the core of the problem. Yeah. The core really is that you need more growth, more inflation on a sustained basis. 
Frederick, great to catch up with you as always. Frederick yeah, de Crozet there, Super. global strategist at Bank Pictay. The first visibility of Osaka was a president in Australia at the end of the table of worthies lined up was an academic from the University of California at Irvine. His name is Peter Navarro. He has been a lightning rod of support and criticism, those that support the president and those that are harshly uh, critical of what some would suggest is a more mercantilist uh, uh, policy. Uh, Dr. Navarro is with the White House and with President Trump. Peter Navarro, thank you again uh, for joining Bloomberg Surveillance. Four years ago, five years ago, Peter, you wrote an article, China's Real Goal, a Monroe Doctrine in Asia. Is this trade war advancing a new Asian Monroe Doctrine as China will move trade processes to Vietnam, to Malaysia, and indeed to South Korea? Tom, I, I'm not sure if uh, that's the case. What I do know coming back from the G20 is that President Trump demonstrated uh, skills uh, that will arguably make him uh, the best foreign policy president since Reagan. Uh, you, you're right to lead with the Australian uh, breakfast we had. Or I, it was a dinner. Uh, it was a great meeting with the Aussies, but great meetings with the Turks, great meetings with the Germans. Um, it's really interesting over the last two and a half years uh, how the president has grown into the role uh, of world leader uh, with the trust uh, of these uh, leaders around the world. Uh, very interesting behind you, closed doors how we can talk to these folks okay. and get stuff done Be, for the American people. Behind, get stuff done for the American people behind closed doors and behind open doors if we close the door to a multilateral or indeed a bilateral approach. Now, look, uh, with China, you, 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 you led kind of with a salacious <laughs> way of going about what? this from an economic point of view. Uh, look, look, here's what happened with President Xi and President Trump. Close friendship, agreement to go uh, and restart negotiations. Uh, Ambassador Robert Lighthizer going to go um, and have face-to-face uh, -face talks with Leo He who's the reformer on the Chinese side, and we're going to work through the structural issues. Not a trade war, it's a trade dispute. We're going to work through the structural issues in a way which is going to make the American economy and the global economy uh, stronger over time. Tom, I think you'd be the first to agree that we can't live in a world where one of the biggest economies in the world steals people's intellectual property and, and Well, that has been identified technology. by all on both sides. Let me bring in my colleague, uh, Dr. Farrow. Peter, most people would agree with that statement, the last one you made. Interesting for you to mention the face-to-face -face meetings. Can you just give us an idea as to when that's going to happen? Soon, yeah. They, uh, I, w I was uh, talking uh, with folks yesterday uh, over the West Wing. Uh, those plans are in process, and they will be done expeditiously. We like to move in what we call Trump time. Uh, we don't waste time. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the president is right in saying that we want to get this right. Please understand that this Chinese-U.S. Uh, agreement is far more complex than anything that's ever been negotiated, including the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, which is the most sophisticated and smartest 
and biggest deal we have ever negotiated. There's simply a lot of moving parts to this. So let's get it right in the in the shorter run over the next couple of months, because I know you folks are investor oriented, which is, is what it's all about. Uh, the two things that are important are getting the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement passed and getting the Fed uh, to lower interest rates. So the USMCA is worth over a point of GDP growth, about half a million jobs, 75,000 jobs in the auto sector. It also modernizes the digital economy, uh, does good things for services and intellectual property uh, in a way which, which plays to the comparative advantages of the United States. So that would be a tremendous boon. Uh, I think uh, if we get uh, either or both of those things yeah. over the next several months, we get uh, over 30000 on the Dow. Uh, that's going to be the next market mover. In the meantime, we're going to have honest, good faith, candid negotiations with the Chinese side, working through these structural problems and uh, uh, trying to get, uh, get to a yes. And we've got a price target from the White House there, Tom, on the Dow. Dow 30000 Peter Navarro. Well, I, yeah, I, had, I do have some credibility here. The day after the election. Oh, here we go. Uh, no, hang on. You, you can write this down. You can actually see the clip. I was on another yeah. network. I won't mention Another it. network? Yes. But the futures were, were, were about as red as they ever get okay. down. I got on before the market opened yeah. and yeah. said that on the uh, basis of tax cuts, Deregulation, yeah. cheaper energy, and a more level playing field, we would get okay. the Dow 25,000. We're out of time. You can, you can bank Peter, that. Peter, I love banking. Okay. We got to go. <laughs> Dr. Navarro, thank you so much. Now, my book of the year. It is. The British are coming. It is Rick Atkinson. Uh, we all know him. We know him from three volumes of World War II brilliance. I had the honor of interviewing him on a Normandy day, one of those days where politicians show up and go through the motions. And yet Rick Atkinson knows every single moment within his research of World War II and now brings that treatment to an extraordinary first effort on, uh, on the American Revolution. Rick Atkinson, we've got about eight ways to go here. I do want to talk to you about how you manufacture the product on your place in literature. We'll do that later. You have a scene a third of the way through the book, which, I mean, I've read everything uh, Gordon Brown's done on Ben Franklin. You've got Franklin at 70 going north up the Hudson, up there's Lake Champlain, and tr tell me, folks, there's no Uber. And then he goes <laughs> north up to the St. Lawrence River and ends up in Montreal or Quebec. I was stunned at that visceral, cold, freezing evidence. Did Ben Franklin almost die on that trip? <laughs> well, first, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Yes, he... Um... He suffered. Um, he was 70 years old, which, of course, is ancient in uh, 1775. And um, he did not travel well generally, although he traveled a lot. He crossed the Atlantic Ocean yeah. seven or eight times in his life. Uh, he suffered from, uh, from boils, from skin conditions generally. Um, the discomfort of uh, following that route that you just described uh, is hard for us to imagine today. Yeah. Uh, but he writes to friends at one point in that journey that he thinks maybe he's bitten off more than he can chew and that uh, he basically writes farewell letters, 
Well, he doesn't die, of course. He makes it to Montreal. His task is to try to salvage what has become a catastrophic American invasion of Canada in an effort to win the Canadians over to our side as the 14th colony. He fails in that, but he makes a a good effort at it. What's so important here, Rick, and this goes to your extraordinary research on you, Brooke, uh, is you bring it alive, as Ellis said in the New York Times, it's as if Ken Burns somehow gained access to a time machine. What was the biggest surprise as you tackled this? I mean, this is not World War II, X number of years later. This is ancient history. What was the biggest surprise in this one volume and the volumes to come? I think the biggest surprise for me is the British point of view, and I deliberately set out to try to tell this story, our creation story, from both the American perspective and the British perspective. And so I spent, for example, a lot of time at Windsor Castle, just west of London, because that's where the papers of Our Last King are kept. George III. They're kept in the the garret of the Round Tower, begun by William the Conqueror in the 11th century. And uh, trying to understand, first of all, why the British would wage war for eight years across 3,000 miles of open ocean in the age of sail was something that beguiled me. Uh, And trying to understand the strategic misconceptions that George and his ministers had about the Americans and about the war was something that I just find uh, endlessly uh, uh, perplexing and fascinating. For example, George is absolutely convinced that if the American insurrection is permitted to succeed, that Canada, Ireland, the Sugar Islands and the West Indies, India, they will all... Uh, flare up in insurrection and it will be the end of the British Empire which at that point is newly created as a consequence of their victory in the Seven Years War in 1763 that's quite wrong it's the domino theory it's it's, yeah. it's an 18th century version of why we got into Vietnam that's wrong and so understanding that understanding their misunderstandings I think is the thing that uh, most uh, beguiled me I can't say enough about this folks and just Horace Walpole and the rest of the British battle uh, with the king and those around him is extraordinary. I want to do a data check here. Green on the screen, the Dow up 60 yields 1.96% as we celebrate without question my book of the year, The British Are Coming. It is the first volume from Rick Atkinson. You know him from his extraordinary award-winning effort on World War II. Rick, let me bring in my colleague, Paul Sweeney. Rick, I'm so uh, happy uh, that you wrote this book and this part of American history. I grew up in Trenton and Washington's crossing New Jersey, so I literally grew up with this My history uh, and we you know every cr- Christmas day we go to Washington's Crossing and see Washington cross the Delaware they recreate yeah. that re- really nicely so put into context those early months of the Revolutionary War the Battle of Trenton the Battle of Princeton how important how critical were they to that period well it's absolutely vital that uh, at this point when you're talking about Christmas time 1776 the American cause really looks like it's on its last legs Washington writes uh, to his brother, I think the game is pretty near up. Uh, He's down to fewer than 3,000 men in the American army. This is in a country of two and a half million people. He's fighting the greatest uh, military in the world. The British army is big and powerful. They have the greatest navy the world has ever seen. And um, he's not had great success. He's been evicted from New York in a bloody battle on Long Island. He's not showed that he has the competence to be the commanding general of this cause. 
And so by the time we get to, to Trenton and then to Princeton, uh, as Washington writes to Congress, desperate times require yeah. desperate measures, and he's desperate. Yeah. Rick, very quickly, and we'll come back and do more uh, with you. There's a Houdin sculpture of George Washington at Mount Vernon, which people have said is the only thing that really looked like him. Do you know who George Washington is after all your prodigious research? You know, there's a there's a opaque quality to him. He did not allow people into his inner life uh, very readily. He did not have um, a lot of close friends. Uh, Martha is probably his closest confidant. I think I've got a pretty good fix on him, though. I've uh, I spent 15 years with Dwight Eisenhower, uh, metaphorically, and I think I understand him pretty well as a general. I've spent six with George Washington so far, and I'm getting there. I think I've got uh, yeah. a, a much better understanding of him, certainly than when I started, uh, and I I see the complexities and the contradictions in him. Uh, I admire him as I admire Eisenhower uh, more every day that I I'm privileged to spend with him. Rick, how many more volumes will there be? Uh, my plan is for there to be two more, Tom. Two more, I yeah. stopped this one as we were just discussing with the victories at Trenton yeah. and Princeton. And uh, the second one will pick up shortly after that in 1777. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, probably take it uh, to the, the, the uh, catastrophic defeat for the Americans at Charleston in 1780. Right. That's where I'll end volume two. And then volume three will take us through Yorktown and the, and the end of the war. And then you've got Napoleon after that seven volumes. <laughs> um, Rick, and Paul Sweeney and Tom came with Rick Atkinson. We're just honored to have him on here, particularly before our day of independence. There is a scene, Rick Atkinson, with Laura Linney, the acclaimed actress, in the TV miniseries John Adams, where the carrot pulls up to the house and they show the pustular kid with smallpox, and she goes out to the card, she gets a thing, and she inoculates one of the young Adams kids against smallpox. The first 100 pages of your book is a medical treatise on Boston and smallpox. How that, that was a dominant theme of the colonies, wasn't it? Well, smallpox, typhus, uh, dysentery, you name it. Uh, smallpox was particularly awful. It was known as the King of Terrors, and it killed 100,000 people in North America between 1775 and 1782. Uh, there was uh, no immunization against it. Uh, that would come later in the century. Uh, there was uh, a kind of crude, homemade uh, version of inoculation where you would take a needle or a, a, yeah. a straw and dip it into an active smallpox pustule and then uh, swab it into a, uh, an incision you'd made on your leg or your arm. And that provided uh, some protection against it. You got sick, but usually not fatally sick. Uh, unfortunately, while you were um, doing this procedure to yourself, you were infectious and you could spread it to other people in your family or your army uh, company or whatever. So uh, it was a terrible disease. Uh, Washington had had smallpox, a relatively light case of it, uh, when he was a young man, contracted in Barbados, his only trip out of America. And uh, the best thing about it is it made you uh, invulnerable to smallpox thereafter. So soldiers who had had smallpox were highly desired. They were really prized because they were immune to future smallpox attacks. So, Rick, when, when the British sent their fleet across the Atlantic, how confident were they that they would win the day? You know, in 1775, when the war begins, they think that it's going to be uh, quick 
and easy. Um, most of them think that. There are some who recognize that, first of all, waging war 3,000 miles of open ocean, the age of sail, is never going to be as easy as you might hope. Uh, but most of them, including the king and his ministers, believed that there was no way that um, this rabble in America was going to be able to stand up to the substantial military force that was being sent, which included, by the way, not only the British Army and the Royal Navy, but 30,000 German mercenaries, the Hessians. They were from uh, seven small German principalities. Hesse provided most of them, so we called them all Hessians. Uh, and there was a belief that there was no way that the Americans could stand up against this kind of coercion, this, this, this bloody military coercion. Um, it didn't take long for that um, pipe dream to, to dissipate. It was small uh, um, uh, Bunker Hill, June 17, 1775, a thousand British casualties in four hours at Bunker Hill, 256 British dead. And when the word reached London, people began to think, hmm, this might, might, might not be as easy as yeah. we had hoped. Rick, I want to get into the style that you have made acclaimed and award-winning. And I'll be blunt, folks. The World War II novel, uh, books, novels, they, f they feel like a novel even though it's not. It's history. You can read about 10 or 12 pages and then you have to put the book down the way Mr. Atkinson writes so intensely. I think of Eric Larrabee and his one-volume commander-in-chief on FDR where what you do and Larrabee does is you go back and you open us up to all the historians before you and then you cite those historians along the way. Give us a historian that our listeners should read when they're done reading Rick Atkinson. Mm. Well, first of all, Larrabee is a, is a really wonderful book. Um, probably the best single-volume book on the American Revolution uh, is by Robert Middlecoff. I think he's emeritus now at uh, UC Berkeley. It's called The Glorious Cause. Uh, it covers the whole period from 1763, the end of the French and Indian War, to 1789, the beginning of the Republic, really. Uh, and it's a doorstop. It's a big old fat book, but it's very well done. He's he's an academic, but he writes with grace. Yeah. Um, so I think that that is a, a book that I can, uh, without yeah. reservation, endorse. Yeah. Paul Sweeney? So, Rick, just, you know... It with your work, what do you think the greatest miscalculation the British made uh, as they sent their fleet over? Uh, Paul, I think uh, easily the biggest strategic error that they've committed, beside the one that I mentioned earlier in believing that other insurrections will come out of this American insurrection, is the premise that a majority of Americans, a majority of the two million white Americans, there were also 500,000 black slaves, were loyal to the crown. They believed that there was a, uh, a, a large residual loyalty uh, from Georgia to New Hampshire that w awaited only an opportunity to express itself, that when the British Army and Navy arrived, that this uh, large, silent majority of loyalists would emerge and help to support the uh, counter-insurrection. That's quite wrong. Uh, modern scholarship uh, has showed that maybe 20% 
of those two million white Americans were loyalists. And of course, loyalty is a shifting concept. It depends on circumstances. And uh, you might be loyal one day and less loyal the next day after that British army leaves your backyard. So um, they predicated their war strategy on that false assumption. They clung to it for years. Um, and it really turned around to, uh, to, to bite them. We've got to leave it there. We have just simply run out of time. Rick Atkinson with us, folks. I can't say enough about the joy of having him on this day before Independence Day and also the joy of the British are coming, the first of uh, many volumes on the Revolutionary War. Rick Atkinson, thank you so much. It is without question uh, my book of the year. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.